Good afternoon, Storehouse. Please remain standing for the reading of God's Word. Galatians chapter 4, verses 8 and 9 says, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to be once more? The word of God for the people of God. All right. Good afternoon, Storehouse. You guys may uh, take a seat. Oh, man. This is uh, exciting and extremely nerve-wracking. But, uh, but we're here, and so... We're, uh, I'm grateful. Uh, so I first just want to start off by saying welcome to Storehouse Community Church. Uh, it is a privilege and an honor to be here before you guys, be able to share God's word on this uh, beautiful Sunday afternoon. Uh, if you guys do not know me, my name is Tony Garcia. Uh, I serve as a ministry intern here at Storehouse McAllen. And uh, a little bit about me is that uh, I am married to my wife, Karina, right there, who's standing in the front as the number one fan here. Uh, we've been married for five years this past November, and we have a beautiful one-year-old son named Noah. Some of y'all may know him. Uh, and so we have been with Storehouse since March of 2020, and um, we're going on three years. And you guys have been a blessing, and as well as an answered prayer to us and my wife uh, when we got here. And so we thank you for your love, your support, and uh, your prayers that you have extended to us. Um, well, with that being said, um, we, uh, I would just want to say a quick little reminder that uh, if you're new here to Storehouse, we're glad that you're here, and we would love to connect with you and uh, be able to take you out to coffee or whether it's reach out, answer some questions, whatever it is that it may be, uh, you can do so by filling out one of those connect cards and dropping it off in the back uh, by the connect uh, desk in that little box, and we'll reach out to you guys within 24 to 48 hours. And also with that, we also have some Bibles right there in the pews that if you don't have a Bible, please take that, uh, you know. Or if you know somebody who needs one or would want one, take it and go ahead and give it to them. It is our gift to you all. So, so yeah, with that being said, uh, I'm going to go ahead, um, like uh, our sister Elsie just read right now, uh, we will be in Galatians chapter 4, verses 8 through 9. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and read our text one, once more. And then I'm going to go ahead and uh, start us off in prayer, and we'll get right into it. So Galatians chapter 4, verses 8 through 9. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world? whose slaves you want to be once more. Let us pray. Father God, we just thank you so much for this day that uh, is filled with your blessing of grace and mercy that abounds all the more. I thank you for this opportunity to be here uh, sharing your word to your people. And I just ask God that through this time that you may open our hearts. Holy Spirit, may you convict us May you enlighten us with the knowledge of our Creator and our Lord and Savior, Jesus. May we, be, may we be able to magnify your name and be able to be captured by the beauty and the glorious grace of our Savior this afternoon. May today's word land in our hearts and take us to a greater adoration and worship of you who are worthy of it all. 
We ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen. All right, so in 2021, the Cowboys were in the second round of the playoffs. And uh, for those of you that don't know me, I'm a silent, diehard Cowboys fan. My wife always says, like, man, you're really committed, but I never see you wear any clothing. It's like, well, sometimes there's shame behind it. So uh, <laughs> I was raised watching the Cowboys since the time that I can remember. And well, just like every year, me and the thousands of other unfortunate, delusioned Dallas Cowboys fans believe that this was the year, right? Uh, in my heart of my hearts, I felt like this could be the break that we finally got that would propel us to the Super Bowl that we've been asking since 1994. As the final seconds of this game came to an end, to our own demise, time ran out, and guess what? We lost the game. Kicking us out of the playoffs and no longer to see the Super Bowl that year. I screamed out words I was not supposed to, heated to the point as if someone had committed evil against me. My whole day ruined, my heart captured by anger and bitterness. This team who I had restlessly devoted myself to buying their jerseys and having cookouts in their name had let me down once more. All the while, my wife receiving the short end of a broken and unfulfilled promise that this team wasn't able to keep. All this control that this one team had on my heart just to come to the sobering reality that they didn't even know I existed. <sighs> While those that did know I existed were forgotten at the expense of my idol worship of football. It might not be football for you, but what is it that you've given yourself up to? What is it that you are constantly looking to with the hopes of being seen or known? Today we'll be introducing our new sermon series titled, an idol factory. And this title comes from John Calvin's famous quote when he says that the heart is a factory of idols. This is because the human heart cannot escape worship. It can't. It is embedded to its core design, function, and purpose. It is what the heart does best. This is our main idea for today's storehouse. The heart was created for worship, leading it to destruction or redemption. I'm gonna read that one last time. The heart was created for worship, leading it to destruction or redemption. We will examine not only the relevance of idol worship in our day, day, in our day to day, but also realize how prone we are to its grips and to show us how desperately in need we are of God's grace and spirit in our lives to fight against it. So, like y'all said, y'all can open up your Bibles. If you already have, we will be in Galatians chapter 4, reading through verses 8 through 9. So before we dive into it, I just want to give you guys some context as to what, this is, uh, what Paul is writing. So uh, Paul's writing to a couple of churches in the region of Galatia. These churches were more than likely churches that he had planted during his missionary trip to Galatia. You can read more about that in the book of Acts. Uh, the reason for the letter was to exhort and to plead with these new Gentile believers over the concerns that he had of the influence that, was being, that they were falling into from some of the religious Jews in their time. They were being told that they had to also keep the law of Moses in addition to the gospel. 
They were being taught that justification did not only come from grace alone, by faith alone, but by circumcision and other Jewish ceremonial acts as well. You see, these Gentile believers, they were once pagan worshipers. They would worship idols in temples and live lives according to those idols or religions that they were worshiping. In our text today, Paul is comparing their wanting to depend on the law in addition to the gospel as what they were once doing in their idol-worshiping days when they did not know God. So our first point is this, a heart made for worship. So verse eight says this, formerly when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. Paul's reminding these Gentile believers by alluding to their past state of false worship. They were enslaved to false worship. You see, they they couldn't help themselves. Everybody in some shape, way, or form worships. And these Gentile believers, before even coming to Christ, were already doing this. And sadly, they were enslaved. The tone that Paul is using here is to, to let them know the emphasis of the condition in which they were at before coming to know Christ. Worship is not a matter of personal belief or of opinion, but one of natural default. We were created to worship and have our hearts captured by something, and and whatever that thing is will then form our desires and our pursuits towards that object that captivated it. For instance, my cookouts with the Cowboys, because I was captivated by them winning the Super Bowl, you know? And my desire was to see them win, and so I would do all these things that a fan does. But we see that humanity has been doing this from the beginning, right? In Romans chapter 1, verses 25, we see Paul make this argument to the people in Rome. And he was saying that they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. It isn't whether we will worship, y'all, but rather what we worship. That is what it is, and any time we surrender our heart's longings to anything other than God, we do so in exchange for a lie. In verse eight, Paul is exhorting these believers because they used to worship idols and sacrifice to gods that left them separated from the actual true God. Paul states that these idols that they worship by nature were not gods. Right? What does that mean? Meaning that they did not have the control that these people thought they did, right? They couldn't do what these gods were promising to do. They, 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 these, these gods that they once believed in that could do these things could not because by nature they aren't able to. I want us to see that these believers were already worshiping before they came to believe and hear the gospel. Christian or not, religious or not, you worship and surrender your heart to something. Paul is making the point that they used to be enslaved to these false gods or idols because they did not know God. Everyone before coming to know Christ is under this enslavement of false worship and captivation. Our hearts are given to all sorts of idols, some which we'll be digging in throughout our time in this series. Everyone, Paul is concerned that these believers would return back to, their, to, to find their security and their value in idol worship by adding religious and moral fulfillments of the law to the gospel. 
But Paul, back in chapter one in the same letter, goes on to say that if we remove from the gospel we heard or add to the gospel that we have heard, it is no gospel at all. When our hearts don't find themselves secured by who God is and what he has done for us in Christ, I promise you, our hearts will place their security in an idol that has spoken louder than the work of Christ. There's no way. It's, it's not a matter, it's, it's not a, the, the heart is not a neutral. It's, it's not something that's just neutral that doesn't give to one way or the other. No, no, no. It, it will always, it has to by default. It, it's its predisposition, some may say. You see, church, idolatry isn't something that some people experience or those who don't know God do, but rather something that happens when we do not see Christ as sufficient. These believers, they, they, they were believers. These, these, the, the people that Paul was writing to are Gentile believers, and they were falling back to this idolatrous way. So we are not immune from this. Idolatry is the heart's natural default to finding its security and value outside of the true God. That's what it is. That's what idolatry is. It is the heart's natural default to finding its security and value in something outside of God. And although idols promise to do certain things for us because we don't just worship idols for no reason, we are just captivated by them for no, for just for no apparent purpose. No, no, they promise something. However, the problem is, is that what they promise isn't what we think. So this brings me to my second point, which is an idol's worthless promise. So I want to skip uh, the first portion of verse 9 now, uh, on purpose, and I want to go to the second portion of verse 9, uh, starting on um, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of this world, whose slaves you want to be once more. At the core of our idol worship lies the need and ultimate desire to be secured and valued by the object of worship. Paul here is exhorting them by asking them about going back to the very thing that God has saved them. He's asking them, do you want, how can you turn back to the weak and worthless elementary principles of this world? He's exhorting them, not only from the thing that God has saved them from, but the very thing that they have come to know as weak and worthless. So it's not like these believers were still ignorant. It's not like they did not know. No, 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 they have come to know God, and they have come to see that those idols that they once worshiped are truly weak and worthless. So for some context, I just wanna give some explanation to this word, elementary principles. This word in the ancient Greek referred to the elements of the material and the visible world that make up nature. And in pagan belief, it was said that the spiritual forces, or quote-unquote gods, lay behind and worked through these elements to control people's lives and destinies. So, what was the hardest? Knowing this, they had to worship and appease these beings for the sake of finding security in their lives and destinies. So they would worship these false idols, right? The crazy thing is that I have never seen anybody worship a sun god, at least from my own personal experience, right? Never. But I have seen people worship family. 
I have seen people worship relationships. I have seen people worship money, power, control, even religion in this particular case. These idols that I saw people, in this case, the, the list that I just mentioned, that I saw them worship was with the belief that those things controlled their destiny or the value or security of the life in which they wanted and so they desperately give themselves to it. And we worship and give ourselves up with the intention of getting something in return from this idol and what it's promising. These believers were returning to weak and worthless idols because it was being promised to them that if they would keep the right standing of the law in this case, including circumcision and all other things, in addition to the gospel, then they would be made right with God. Then they would finally stand righteous before God. And just like depending on the law would prove to be worthless and weak, so does every other idol that we try to bring alongside or exchange for the gospel for our security and our value. Here are three promises that these, that these weak and worthless idols do offer, though. So... The first one is discontentment. An idol promises to be able to satisfy the heart's eternal longing, but it doesn't. In Ecclesiastes 3, we see that God placed, uh, Ecclesiastes 3, verse 11, uh, it reads, also he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. God has placed that which is infinite in the heart of man, and we are constantly perplexed by this longing of desire for more, because that's what God placed in our heart. He placed eternity in our heart. However, we were made by him who is eternity himself. And an idol which is limited by nature cannot bring forward contentment to a heart made for eternity. It can't. An idol says, if you have it, or more of it, then you will be satisfied. But if the heart was made for eternity and the one who made it is eternal, how can this thing that is limited by nature actually give you that? That's why it's constantly wanting you to have more of it. Just a little bit more. Just a little bit more. I just need this, I just need that, and then the heart's longings will finally be satisfied. But it never is. None of us, like how many of us have tried or have told ourselves, if I had this, or if I just acquired that, or if I was in that position, then things would be different, God. And how many of us, when actually getting the thing, are finally fully content? Now, nah, because then there's always an exception, right? There's always something more. We justify, we reason with this idol and say, no, you're right, just a little bit more of it, and then it's good. But none of us, none of us have experienced true contentment by the acquisition of something, uh, of an idol's promise. When our hearts depend on an idol, its satisfaction, y'all, is short-lived. And I've experienced this uh, every time when I, especially when I first got my first car, it was funny. It had this 2004 Focus. It was really beat up. And, you know, I was like, man, God, like, if I got a new, uh, and I, I did a poor job of taking care of it, right? Mind you that. Uh, and I was like, man, God, if I got this, then I will finally take care of this. Then I will finally be good. Then I will, it's like, I got, and then I got, I purchased my first car. And then I was like, wow, this is finally it. And oddly enough, four months later, I was like, man, 
that car would be sweet though, you know, that other one. And so it, it's such a simple thing, right? But nonetheless, it's just to show you that the heart is always wanting more. And we see that, this, 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 that there, there is this dissatisfaction. In John chapter four, 13 and 14, we see Jesus alluding and, and giving insight to this, to this issue. Jesus said to the woman at the well, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. Full contentment is not found in the right number of things possessed or experienced, but in him who made our hearts to be filled in him. There is this popular phrase called divine discontentment. The first time I heard about this is I was, I was, I was reading a psychology article and I was very uh, surprised to hear this, this phrase, divine discontentment. And it's used to describe a restless dissatisfaction with what is. So even secular, uh, you know, even in the secular world, there is this dilemma that people are aware of, right? That there is this restless dissatisfaction with what is. You see, when we attempt to rely on these weak and worthless idols, we will be dissatisfied with what is. Whether it be your job, your career, your spouse, your church, whatever, you name it. If you are resting in an idol, I promise you, you will always be dissatisfied with what you have, I promise you. And more importantly than that, right, it will leave us dissatisfied with what God has done for us and given us through his son, Jesus Christ. That's, that's the main argument, that's the main concern here that these Gentile believers were actually not, they weren't satisfied with the work of Christ. Augustine pinpoints it uh, this way when he says that the epicenter, that this is the epicenter of human identity. He goes on to say, you have made us for yourself and our heart is restless until it rests in you. The second promise that these idols give you is that they offer and promise deception. Idols are weak and worthless because they deceive us from reality and those in it. They give off the illusion of a better life, whether by gain or by pleasure. They say to you that there is more than God behind this, right? That's what we see in the garden in the beginning when Adam and Eve were tempted by the serpent and the serpent said, hey, did God really say not to eat of this? But don't you know that if you were to eat of this, you would be like God knowing more? There's this deception to think that there's something more than God, something better, a life better than that. And we see how deceiving this is because in, that, in, that, in Romans, while uh, Paul is giving this argument to the people in Rome regarding the, the deprivation of humanity, he goes on to say in Romans chapter one, verses 22 to 23, Claiming to be wise, they become fools and exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man. Claiming to be wise, they become fools. We see that these Christians were falling into the trap of thinking that there could actually be something better than the free gift of salvation by way of faith through grace alone. It deceives people to think that they could actually be okay without God 
if, as long as we have X, Y, and Z. Or even worse, for some of us, right? We're deceived to the point that we think that our relationship with God would be even better if we had X, Y, and Z. It deceives us to fix our eyes on the things of this earth as if Jesus did not say, do not store up treasures for yourself here, but rather store your treasure up in heaven. It's funny because sometimes I think it's like, nah, Jesus, you don't mean that literally, right? It's like, I got to store myself up something here, you know? But what he's talking about is not, is, not, is not to set up your family for success. No, no, no. It has to do with where you find yourself rooted and, and where you think your security and your value lies. Paul even goes on to make an argument about this when he says, do not set your mind on the things of this earth, but fix your eyes on the things above where your life is hidden in Christ Jesus. Idols deceive us into thinking that security and value can be found in things outside of the true God. What is the outcome of this deception? Well, we make possessions out of people when we believe this, and we also make possessions our purpose. And the last thing that these idols promise is despair. They leave us helpless and in fear. Why? Because we're depending and placing our hope on something that cannot deliver your heart from what it really needs. In Jonah chapter 2, verses 8 through 9, this is what he says. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. When we worship idols, we surrender our true hope in Christ. We surrender the, the, the true hope of being secured and valued and the peace that comes with that. And what ends up happening is that we end up hopeless because this thing did not deliver for us, right? We end up bitter or depressed and we're left even worse or the same than before we started worshiping this thing or having this thing hopefully fill the longing of our hearts. Or if it did deliver to you, what that idol was promising you, it leaves you not in peace, <laughs> but anxious and afraid. Why? Because now you have the hope of never losing this thing that has deceived you to think that it's actually satisfied you, and so now you're anxious and you're afraid. You don't want to lose it. You're afraid of not having it, and so now you give yourself up restlessly to this thing in order for you to keep it, never actually enjoying it or being filled by it. The irony of an idol. The believers in Galatia, instead of being free and under the law of grace, guess what? They were enslaving themselves back to the burden and the fear of the law. We do the same when we start thinking that we need something more than Jesus. That we need something other than Jesus to truly experience our value and our security. A destruction of life is one that is accompanied by the heart's worship of idols. But in all that, church, that is why those who worship these weak and worthless idols are in constant unrest and despair of never being known. But as we will see, that these Gentile believers, along with those who have placed their trust in Christ, don't have to be in despair 
knowing that they are actually known. Which brings me to my last point. A heart known by God. And so now I want to return back to the first portion of verse 9, which reads, But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, this statement not only tells us good news, but reminds us of it. The word known in this uh, text implies intimacy of relationship with. Paul is wanting to remind these Galatians that they have not only come to know the true God, but they have come to be known by him. I mean, they have come to enter into intimate relationship with this God, that the true and living God knows them, knows us, that he is not some God who is far off, but one who entered into human history to save us, and not from a distance, but from near. And he did so for us, what we could never do, y'all. We could never bring ourselves into relationship with God. So Christ himself came, and out of his works and his righteousness, we have been brought to the Father. In verse 9, we see that there is an exhortation to remember and be reminded that they no longer have to fall to the enslavement of these false idols or these false gods. Because Christ, who saved them and died for them, knows them personally and intimately and are in relationship with him. And because they've come to know and be known by Jesus, that he is the true God that saved them freely. And that if they were to know this, they would know the fact that Christ already did for them what they could never do, which is fulfill the law on their behalf. That was the whole point in this, in this portion of the text, that these individuals thought that they now needed to, needed to keep the law in order to maintain uh, this righteous standing before God or for their salvation. And, and that wasn't the case. Christ already did that for them. These believers have been given a new heart they can confidently respond to whatever idol knowing that they don't need to be beckoned by anything other than the glorious work of their Savior for them. That's the confidence of what it means to be known and to know God. So what does it look like to have a heart known by God? Is at first it is satisfied by the Spirit. In Colossians chapter 2, verses, uh, verse 10, it says, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you, you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. We have been filled in him who is all in all. For these Gentiles, what they thought they needed to do, Christ already had done it for them. And just like these believers, those who have come to be known by God have received in him all that is needed to stand righteous, forgiven, and approved before him. Received it all. In Romans 8, verse, uh, in Romans chapter 8, verse 16, it says that the Spirit himself bears witness to our spirit that we are children of God. They need not doubt that they are secured or valued by him. 
They didn't need the law to validate themselves. They didn't need these religious Jews to go ahead and say, now you're approved. No, no, no. The very spirit of God was in them, bearing witness to them that they are children of God. The Holy Spirit made them alive to God, not needing to subject themselves back to this enslavement of idols. And Jesus also goes on to say in John chapter 6, verse 36, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. We see that Jesus tells us that in him, and in him alone, we are satisfied. That our hearts and its longings are met in Christ, who is the source of our living. And this is a promise from Christ, that we are in him, that when we are in him, we are satisfied, but one that we don't often believe. Why? Because that doesn't mean that we will have everything we want, but what it does mean is that we will find and have true contentment with him being what we truly need. Until we see and until we accept that Christ is what we truly need above everything else, we will always believe that we are not actually satisfied in Christ. As if these words that Jesus spoke about the fact that him being the bread of life and that whoever eats and comes to him shall not hunger and that whoever believes in him shall never thirst. In order for us to believe, we need to see that Jesus at the end of the day is truly what we need. And the second point to a heart that is known by God is secured and valued by him who is all. When the heart is prone to idol worship, it is because it is being enticed to believe that it can be secured by something other than God or in addition to God. When our hearts are enticed by idol worship, it is because we are being prone to believe that there could be something that secures us outside of God or in addition to God. These Gentile Christians were being enticed to believe that their relationship with God would truly be secured if they kept the law of Moses in addition to the gospel. But what, but what is there that an idol can promise you that can secure you more than the God who saved you and his work for you? In Romans chapter 8, verses 31 to 35, we read this. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all? How he will not also with, his graciously, uh, with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of, of God? who indeed is interceding for us, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? What is there that can secure you and validate you more than him who is all? If we belong to the ultimate sovereign king of the universe, what more security or value can an idol offer you than him? The amazing thing about being secured in God through Christ is that all this comes from the love that the Father has for his people. Unlike idols that demand and demand and demand, 
the Father gives to us freely his Son. In verse, in that same chapter, in the, in the next verses, 37 to 39, we read, No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor death, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Not only are we secured and valued by him who is the ultimate sovereign king of the universe, but we are secured and valued by him because we are loved by him. And we have received that love through his son, Jesus Christ. You are loved, you are cared for. And sometimes we think that we need to add something else because we doubt that God, his motives and his intentions. We think that God withholds good or that God doesn't know, but at the end of the day, like what can secure you or validate you more than him who is all? And not only does he validate you and secure you, but he does it because he loves us. And unlike idols that don't bring life, nor true value to your soul as an image bearer, God does so by loving us when he gave his son up for us as a ransom for our sin. In him we experience true value and security. What, what can love us or secure us more than God and what he has done for us through Christ? While idols tell you that you need this and that to add value or to feel secured, God in all our mess in our ugliness, meets us and becomes for us the value and security that we so desperately need. These believers that Paul is writing to is wanting them to remember that this is who they have come to be known by. And it is in him, Jesus, that they have been redeemed and secured for their salvation and their justification before God. So to conclude, church, our hearts we're created for worship, and that worship will lead it to destruction or redemption. And unlike my idolization of the Cowboys in that playoff game, leading to my heart being so desperately destroyed, a heart known by God is one that will experience the redemption of its worship towards its maker. Church, our hearts are in desperate need for redemption. Just think about how easy it is to fix our eyes on things outside of Jesus. And not just simply to be concerned with the matters of stewardship or of provision, but to genuinely be consumed by something else other than Christ. Friends, to truly and fully be human, we need to find ourselves in relationship to the one who made us and from whom we were made. It is not till then that we can be freed from the enslavement of false worship towards idols and finding hope and security and value in things that will pass away. But that requires a new heart. This heart that is dead to its trespasses cannot worship God. And it is only through the work of Christ on our behalf when he lived the life that we cannot which included worshiping God purely and fully, let us not forget that he also was tempted by Satan in this regard when he says, if you bow down to me, I will I'll give you all these kingdoms of the earth. And Jesus responded, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. 
So he lived that perfectly and dying the death that we deserved for our sins and being raised by the power of the Spirit, granting us a new heart and eternal life to all those who come to him in faith and place their trust in him for their salvation. Christian, if you have been placing your heart towards finding your value and your security outside of the work and love of Christ for you, I encourage you to come to the Father, confess your idol worship, and repent from having your heart captured by something that is empty and void and cannot even come close to offering you what God has offered you in Christ. And if you're not a Christian, I'm glad that you are here. It is an honor to have been given the time to speak to you, but I must be honest. You will continue to experience the void of false worship. You will continue to be enslaved to the idols that are weak and worthless and in separation from the one who made your heart to worship him. Because our heart of sin constantly will want to exchange the glory of the eternal one for things created. But the good news is that Jesus came into into human history and lived the life that we cannot and died the death that we deserved, and he stands ready and willing to pardon you and to offer you a new heart that redeems it to worship and fully be secured and valued by him. And with that church, as we continue into this series, may we not be deceived by our hearts to think that we are not prone to this idol worship. It's easy to say that I love God and that I read my Bible. Man, during that year, I thought that I had it. I was reading my Bible, I was serving in church, and then just to realize that I was captured by something other than Christ that dictated my whole being. As we walk through this series, may we come boldly and confidently confessing ourselves to God to keep us from these idols that steal us and rob the joy and the glorious grace of our Savior and the beauty of our God. Let us pray. Father God, I just thank you. We, uh, we stand in awe to know that there is nothing greater than you. We thank you for your word that constantly shows us and illuminates our hearts and it's prone to deception. And this deception isn't just merely a deception that keeps us from living life, no, no, it's one that keeps us from you. We ask that you continually renew in us a steadfast spirit and create in us a clean heart. We need you. And just like these believers in Galatia, Lord, we ourselves are also prone to wanting to go back, return back to worthless and weak idols. Thinking as if they can offer us more than what you have given us freely in your son. Forgive us and help us to remember what you have done for us We praise you, God, and we ask that, that we may be conformed into your image and that our hearts may be captivated and in awe of who you are 